Hi, guys. Welcome to the Church Split. My name is Will. We got Brian with us today. What's up, heretics? You guys know what we do here. We have the Escape Your Church is Echo Chamber. Learn to think biblically and, of course, challenge the status quo, which always needs challenging. And today you're tuning into part two of our series responding to Christy Burke's five reasons or five verses, really, that caused her to deconstruct and leave the faith. For those of you guys who are not familiar with her, she is a very famous TikTok atheist who posts all her deconstruction stuff and pulls widely out of context verses and tries to create contradictions of the Bible that are not there and presents herself as an expert when she is not. But otherwise, don't before we jump into this, don't forget to like and subscribe to the channel and support us on Patreon if you want more content like this. Ring that notification bell and all the internet stuff because, yes, and all, but also if you hate it and you hate it, what we're doing here, uh, go away or at least leave us a very amusing comment. Uh, and if you're listening on audio, leave us a five-star review on Spotify or Apple. Okay. So with that said, uh, let's do either. We have merch up. Ah, so. yes. Go to the Chris church. Plug merch. We might as well plug ours. <laughs> yeah. She plugs her merch. Yeah. And Brian's got this great shirt. It's a new design that we recently created. Brian can show it again. What's up heretics. So uh, with our little logo there, it's Brian's little tagline. We have my tagline as well, uh, but it is way longer than Brian's and Brian's is way cooler <laughs> for a t-shirt. So it works out. Uh, I love, by the way, how your tagline has become uh, the entire community's tagline for the show. Like everyone who follows <laughs> the church split, they're like, what's up, heretics? I'm like, yeah, Brian got the cool one. <laughs> yeah. See if you can find the episode where we coined it, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. What? What? I don't remember which one it was, but it was literally off the top of my head and it stuck ever since. (laughs) (laughs) Now I want to play that game. Let us know in the comments (laughs) below. All right, cool. So first, before we jump into this, we're going to do this real quick, uh, rapid fire. But Brian, give us a quick review of part one of some of the things that she said. Yeah, so part one, Chrissy is talking about the verses that help start leader out of um, Christianity. The first one she goes to is Romans nine. She reads it in a very Calvinistic way. And uh, it's kind of interesting because she actually characterizes the Calvinistic version of Romans nine, essentially doing violence to the character of God and who is contradictory to the the God of the Bible that she was taught growing up, which we would agree with. Um, and that allowed her to keep questioning things. And she commits and continues to commit in today's episode, the is fallacy where just because something is stated in the Bible doesn't mean that's something that we ought to do. So she's looking at, you know, she calls it unsavory things in scripture. She's mostly going to the Old Testament for the unsavory things. And we'll get into that today. We talked about, um, we talked about Romans 9 last week or last episode. And the other one was Psalm 137, um, talking about dashing the babies uh, against the rocks. Um, so if you haven't watched that, please go ahead and watch that. Um, Cause I'll, we'll, We'll be referring to some of the things that she said in her introduction, um, but I want to get back to one of the things she said in her introduction that I think is really interesting because she says she's on a journey to find truth and she has not found the ultimate truth, but she thinks that that's the point and that it's essentially okay to say, I don't know. And just want you guys to remember to keep thinking about that as we go through uh, her video and her claims about scripture, because she's going to say a lot of what she thinks she knows, and she's really not going to say, I don't know for the rest of this video. Um, so it's kind of interesting that we think that she's just trying to say that to sound humble, but really what she wants you to do is to follow her in her path of deconstruction. And we just want to remind you that deconstruction without reconstruction is just apostasy and do not follow her. And she's going to say these things are, uh, she tried to find good justifications for the verses and didn't find it, but we will hopefully show again today 
that uh, there are so many good explanations for these verses, and she did not look at heart hard at all. And maybe she was only looking at 60 second TikTok videos to try to find explanations, and that's why the explanations fell flat. So we're not going to probably say anything new today. We're saying things that the church has been saying for literally more than a thousand years, um, some even 2,000 years. So I hope that we're just pointing to what scripture says and pointing to the proper explanations for these scriptures and showing that uh, they do not create the the violence to the character of God or the doubt that she is having formed in her mind for her faith from these verses. How'd I do? That was great. Good All job, right. Brian. 10 out of 10. Um, so we're going to go ahead and jump into this and we are going to go over her next three Bible verses that led her to deconstruction. And the last one, the last verse is John three sixteen itself. So we'll talk about that here. Let's roll. Really just struck me. Big red flags popped up when I read it um, was in Deuteronomy 22, starting in verse 28. If a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married and he assaults her and they are discovered, he shall pay her father 50 shekels of silver. He must marry the young woman for he has violated her. He can never divorce her as long as she lives. Now, when I read this in the earliest stages of my deconstruction journey, I was very confused and I thought there has to be an explanation for this. There's no way that God commanded women to marry men who assaulted them if they just paid their father. Like there's, there's no way the Bible says this. I need to figure this out. I contacted my old pastor and I asked if I could discuss some things with him because I had some questions. So we set up a, a night to have dinner. I went over to his house. I, I pointed out this verse and I said, what does this mean? Like what, how can you justify this? And he said, yeah, you know, this is what it says is true that time in the culture, um, you know, if a man did that to a woman, she would be considered unclean and not eligible to be married and that would ruin her life. And so the best thing they could do is have him pay money to her father and buy her. And then he'd have to marry her and he'd have to take care of her for the rest of her life. He would be obligated to do that. That is his punishment. And some people who are indoctrinated, who are taught not to question it, will just go, oh, okay, that makes sense. But not me. I, I couldn't. I could not make sense of that. Um, it'd be one thing if these were just rules that men made up that God did not approve of. But this is this is a direct law of God in the Bible. This kind of loophole for men to find a wife if they just assaulted her and then they could marry her if they just, you know, paid her father some money. And supposedly that was a lot of money back then. So that was a very big punishment, but really that that's how we, that's how we punish the man. I don't know any woman that would ever want to spend her life being married to and having to submit to the man that assaulted her. And I've had people ask me, well, what do you recommend? What's the solution? I mean, she would have been an outcast. She would have been unclean. She wouldn't have been eligible for marriage. And so what are they supposed to do? They were trying to protect her. I don't know. Maybe God could have commanded the community to come together and take care of that woman. Maybe God could have commanded the men to marry women, even if they aren't virgins, to not worry about if a woman was a virgin when he married her. That would solve the problem right there. I just came up with a better solution than God could a more moral solution. 
an all-powerful deity couldn't come up with a better solution than a woman must marry the man who assaults her? That doesn't add up for me. It doesn't sit right with my sensibilities. And so when I got that answer from him, it was not satisfactory. The justification, the apologetic response for this verse is just not satisfactory for me to find good moral value in it. Well, Christy Burke, I'm glad you don't find moral value in something that was uh, in the ancient Near Eastern Bronze Age and that you have literally zero understanding of the ancient Near Eastern context. And now, just so you know, um, her pastor wasn't completely incorrect. And no. By the way, this is, of course, her characterization. So it sounds like kind of a milk toast version, but it could also be that he gave a better answer and she's just summarizing yeah. it poorly. But she, there, there are so many things to unpack about this. <laughs> First off, I'll just say it right out the gate. Um, this passage is actually meant to protect women, not harm them. Uh, and it's actually one of the many things that made Israel attractive to people, especially women. Um, but so just to reiterate, again, we're not understanding ancient Near Eastern co context, especially during like something like the Bronze Age. So the Torah seems strange to a lot of us okay we're we're westerners we think very literally we think in a very particular uh linear way uh and so it seems very strange to us in our little insulated post-geneva convention world but the reality is life has not always been this way life mm -hmm. hasn't been always this way what people also don't understand is that this passage is again actually saying to protect women so let me first mention that this is case law ancient near eastern case law this isn't saying it ought to be this way but if these events happen, then handle it like this. Like if these tragic set of events do take place, this is the solution to it. So, yeah. and Christ we, heightens the standard, right? In the New Testament, we, he says that many of these measures were simply due to the hardness of their hearts. And in other words, God worked a redemptive purpose through these laws over time. It wasn't exactly. what it was supposed to be like. Right. So we see like these kind of th this law, but then we see more and more of these things kind of improve over time. If you haven't read Webb's um, book on the, the law of the Old Testament, it's definitely worth reading. But regardless, this passage doesn't deal as poorly with women as TikTok atheism seems to believe. So let's just let's, what <laughs> surprising. <laughs> yes. So let's uh, let's just fact check Christy Burke here. So notice how it uses the word sees. Oh, the woman. Now, this means as in a rape. Okay. So it also follows up with, and they are found. So not having sex before marriage was a big deal in ancient Israel. And it's still a big deal in Christian and Jewish and Muslim communities to this day. And in fact, she's like, well, why can't God just say not to marry a virgin? You know, it's okay. To, I'm like, I'm sure you people, sure a lot of those who belong to the streets would love that uh, law to be a thing. But bottom line is, uh, being uh, being with other sexual partners was what that devalued people back then. But as much as people don't want to acknowledge it nowadays, men and women are different. Sexually, men tend to be sexual aggressors. Women tend to be less so, which is why men are the ones who are usually, you know, arrested for rape and sexual assault, things along that nature. But if you, so one of the things that we need to consider here as well is. That if you walked in and a man and a woman were having sex and there there could be consequences for them both, right? So think about that for a moment. That's why that there was consequences in there 
if both men and women even were having consensual sex. Yeah, what the you're women, saying is essentially that with right that the, the verse says that they're she's not pledged to be married. They're found to be having sex. It's one thing that she could say because it's going to devalue her if she is not a virgin anymore to say, "Oh, I was raped. I was I didn't I didn't I didn't want to do that." And so yeah, she could is, easily claim rape. Yeah, so this is a way to actually protect both of them, even in the scenario where they're doing something they're not supposed to, according to Jewish law. Right. So whether consensual or rape, there are severe consequences, actually more so for the man, because <laughs> whether it was consensual or he raped, he was going to be in big trouble. <laughs> yep. There are some ramifications coming down. So she could actually be honest. Like, not that's not saying that men didn't rape. Of course, there mm -hmm. was that. But I'm just saying, like, she could claim that, well, this was rape. He forced me to do this. And then he suddenly eats the consequence because they did know that that was also a thing that could happen in the ancient world because women would be raped in the ancient world, just like women still are tragically today. So the Bible is actually one of the few ancient books that actually condemns rape continually. It actually never made rape a good thing, ever. It never tell, told them to, to just take their women. In fact, <laughs> there was actually very specific laws on how that would happen if you were even at war. Uh, if you wanted, like, you couldn't just, like, rape a woman in in ancient in ancient Israel. You actually had to, like, marry her and pledge to her and all this stuff. <laughs> there was, the Bible was very anti-rape. So, yeah, if you want to do the deed, you better be married and you better pony up some money. Yep. And, the, and I, this seems calloused to say this, but this is the fact of what the ancient Near Eastern world was like. Rape was a part of life. And it was actually very regular back then. Yeah, it's a tragic thing. It's not a good thing. But rape was a very normal thing back then. Uh, and it's not so that it should have been. But that's why uh, it was Israel, again, was so odd compared to a lot of places. They didn't look at women as just objects to be taken advantage of. So men, uh, and the reason for this was men, of course, were stronger. Uh, they got to pillage and warfare. And uh, they literally, like, rape was looked at as part of their reward for taking like a village or a city but god forbade israel to engage in such practices the verse get and so here's what's funny is that this verse actually gives a woman a way out she could be this sex could be consensual but she could have also been raped or she could claim rape right however the man wasn't thrown in prison nor was he killed he was instead demanded to take on the responsibility of, of as a husband, because if you're going to do the deed of a husband, then you're going to take the responsibility of a husband. Now, again, this is that post Geneva 21st century world where we're like, you know, rape, we should just throw them off. You know, we should kill them all. But there's also the possibility that could be consensual, but this, the consequences are severe. But again, you and are you found them. You walked in on the situation. And if it was consensual. Well, then the severe, but she could get out of it and just claim he overpowered her. Well, we don't know what really ha may, may have gone down unless, of course, she's, you know, there's very obvious signs of rape, you know, like being beaten or something like that. Which comes but, with its own consequences. Which came with its own consequences in the case law, right? But this allowed a woman a way out. But And if the man, so it was a punishment to him, believe it or not and a failsafe for women. Because since virginity was required for most 
Israelite marriages. And it was looked on as something that was so highly regarded as um, something sacred between husband and wife. The rape could ruin her future of having children and a home. And she would be forced to live with her father. And back then, you did not have a very long age, right? So her father would die in the next X amount of years. And then she would be left homeless and a beggar on the street. The whole point that fathers would protect their, their daughters from things like rape. like they, That's why they were under their household, so they couldn't be taken advantage of. And then that's why they would have to, a young man would have to approach them. They had to pay the bride price to help provide financial by the way, that bride price was another thing intended to protect the woman, because if the let's say the, the her husband died, that bride price money would be used to fund taking care of the wife and kids of said marriage if the husband died and the father had to take her back. Okay, so these are all things intended for protection, but of course we have our twisted view and no one actually cares about that. But the father would hold on to her and the young man would offer bride price. And then the father would be like, okay, yes, because the father would approve as in you are, he is a safe man to be with. He can take care of you. And I know you're not going to be raped and pillaged and destroyed or starved to death. Okay. So if she had, this could ruin her entire future of not having a man in which to marry because she had no financial security. Cause back then a woman couldn't, be just joined the workforce because women still had periods. They usually still had to take care of children. They lived, they were nomadic people, right? They lived in the desert surrounded by enemies who did want to rape and pillage them. So these, it was a very important thing that she had a fail safe. If she really was raped, she could be like, well, I might not have a future uh, anymore because of what this man did, but maybe I can at least be taken care of. So her father, um, because again, her father could die in early grave. She'd be left homeless without a husband or children to care for her. So this is again, pre-feminism. Women didn't have the same opportunities afforded to them today. And they were more vulnerable than before. And you can complain about it and say that God didn't have very good rules here. But bottom line is, there is a culture that was going on here. And there is a context which this was taking place. And the man still had to pay the bride price. If you think that's a short amount of money, you're <laughs> out of your mind. Yeah. It was like if you got caught being a rapist, it was like, and you did not have money set aside for a bride price. It was talk about financial ruin. Um, you basically, basically fork over a large sum of wages to her father. And then it also says like, you cannot divorce her. Like, in other words, you don't get to just be like, well, I'm displeased with this situation, so I'm going to divorce her like you could do. You were forbidden from doing that, but I, we'll talk about that here in a second. So the man still had to pay the bride price and basically fork over this large sum of money. So remember, they couldn't afford things like prison back then. So before you're like, well, why are you going to they just send the rapist to jail? No, there no, no, you, <laughs> there was no jail. Like you were either going to like, yeah, you're either going to be in forced servitude, which Israel wasn't really all for, because of their history of being a poor servitude, or you were killed, and they jail and prison was a resource that they didn't have. Desert people who traveled, they were nomadic a lot of that, that a lot of the time. So <laughs> with what resources? Uh they, they would be actually a big waste of resources. So instead, they often had to pay out of their resources, which was precious to them, which again would be damaging, which by the way, you don't ever read much in ancient Israelite like literature of rapes really happening very much because of this there are strong consequences and the way the community was raised 
that was very much frowned upon. That wasn't a thing. And uh, they had plenty of ways for young men to get married. And again, he was forbidden to divorce her. So he had to actually take on the responsibility of a husband and a provider. Again, you did that to her. Now you're going to make it up your entire life by providing for her. In Israel, if a man didn't provide for his family, he would was actually cast out. And Paul echoes this by saying that those who don't provide are worse than an unbeliever because Paul was a Jew. So there's, again, financial responsibility. You had to step up and be a husband and you couldn't abuse your wife. You couldn't do it. So suddenly she's given like a stepped up position in her community and in her own home. And you can no longer do that. In other words, again, if you take a woman or even if she claims that you did, you take the full responsibility of marriage without divorce. He wouldn't be allowed to abuse her anymore. He couldn't have, and that would have severe consequences, by the way, up to the death penalty. And she'd then be cared for by other members of the community or her father. By the way, Isn't again, what Chrissy said that should happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. But she left out this wonderful little part about this whole situation, because in Exodus 22, 16 through 17, the decision to give her to marry this man who raped her would actually be up to her father. Her and her father, if you read these ancient sources, would actually console with his daughter and see what the daughter, him and the daughter would make a decision together. And then the father was the spokesman. He'd be like, my daughter will marry him or my daughter will not marry him. So in other words, that, that probably also gave her pro- possibly the opportunity to be like, yeah, dad, I actually kind of really liked him, but things got out of control or mm-hmm. be like, yeah, you know, he did uh, things. He, I was alone with him. He was violent. He was just disgusting. And I hated the whole thing. And the dad be like, OK, well, screw it. Well, you're not going to be with him, you know? There's, yeah. there, there's here's this the thing. Go ahead. Well, hey, this is the thing that Christy was saying would be nice is, oh, should they allow marriage for people that aren't virgins? This is exactly what she's saying. Mm-hmm. This is exactly. exactly that. Yeah. And they weren't, it wasn't uh, illegal. It wasn't like a forbidden thing that if a woman was ever penetrated, suddenly she wasn't allowed to marry. It was just usually a thing that was difficult to get married. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so since she would be left likely destitute after being forced into sex, This gave the woman a chance to be provided for her entire life. But also, she had a way out, and her father could come up with that, because who knows? Maybe she was already seeing somebody. Maybe there was other viable options for her within the community. And also, the large portion of the community also would understand what rape was, because, by the way, back then in ancient Israel, rape was a frowned-upon act, and people and rape victims could still be remarried. Uh, Could still not remarried, could still be married, and... They, it could still happen, but this just gave her the option of having of securing herself a future, if she wanted to. So, uh, sorry, I'm spending a lot of time on this, Brian. I apologize. No, you're good. Um, but she, but she asked her pastor, right? So she asks her pastor. So first, recall she said that at the beginning of the video in her uh, that in her church, you weren't allowed to ask questions. But I guess that changed because suddenly her pastor is willing to come over, have her over for dinner, and answer yeah. questions. <laughs> so uh, apparently, you were allowed to ask questions. You just apparently didn't feel comfortable asking questions or something. I don't know, but but then she says this: those who are indoctrinated will make will make say it makes sense. <laughs> you know, there's atheist scholars who actually say that exactly what I'm saying right now, right? Like this does make sense in this ancient Near Eastern Bronze Age context mm-hmm. because that this wasn't actually, uh, was a moral improvement because guess what? Um, 
because okay first off i'm not indoctrinated i just see this as a huge step for women's rights and men taking responsibility for their for their actions because back then that was not the case men didn't have to okay uh, in fact you're gonna be uh more like you're gonna be mortified here in a few minutes when i read what was the normal for back then so this was i see this as a moral win in comparison to the laws surrounding nation of surrounding nations like the laws of hammurabi if you after all the hammurabi law had the death penalty only if she was betrothed so you'd be killed if she was engaged because then we know for a fact that she wasn't that it wasn't consensual or at least it shouldn't be consensual mm -hmm. um we then we put them to death but otherwise guess what something like in the assyrian law if a man raped a woman his wife would be raped then too oh that seems fair <laughs> right so you want to talk about victim more like promulgating the victimization of women that's what would happen like if I raped somebody, my wife would then have to be raped. Yeah. That's super messed up. Like no, that's not cool at all. And that's why that you know ancient Israel was seen as this kind of light in the darkness because it actually had more fair programs. It had it was the early beginnings of what we would call social welfare in today's mm -hmm. age. We see this as something new that was introduced into the world. So if this was a right, this book to oppress people, why is it that these these writings are there to actually free people and are new from what the real oppression that was occurring at that time in ancient right. Greece? To give women an actual voice to make choices for their future mm -hmm. after something tragic has happened to them. So the Torah instead punished the perpetrator, right? Not the man's wife. And uh she also caused us like a loophole to find a wife like some people say that like it's a loophole for them to find a wife like i'm gonna rape her and then she's mine say that there's no example of them being, oh i really i i'm so ugly i need a wife so let me go rape one and then i can i can quote exodus or deuteronomy and i'm i'm good <laughs> right exactly nowhere in scripture does say this happened the, this further shows she doesn't understand the any context because guess what the dad could still say no and yep. you would could still be in trouble so most AE laws, if you look at most by eight, whether the AE is ancient Near Eastern, sorry, AE is the short version. Most AE laws were designed to be severely punitive in nature, like extremely so. Whereas the Torah often has the idea of restitution in mind and giving victims ways to seize some control over their lives. So a lot of times the Torah wasn't even looking to kill even perpetrators and now some people might have a problem with that but their big thing was trying to find restitution to a really broken situation and giving victims more power than they had before but that so, goes into, she keeps saying like oh does this mix with mix with a uh a fully benevolent god like yes it does even perpetrators are showing showing grace and mercy in this time period which was not the case at all it was all um an eye for an eye back then and this exactly. is the change. This was the change in culture and was promulgated by God's people through God's word. But she says, I don't know any women who'd want to be with a man who assaulted her. But I know I don't I think Islam is about as morally worthless for the world as most as any other belief system could be. However, she obviously didn't look very hard because um, there is this whole thing which uh 
there's an Afghan woman who actually did marry her rapist. And she said it's because she was pregnant and it was that the, better to do that than to endure the shame of everything else. So, and, uh, you know, be a single mom and all those sorts of things. And she didn't want to deal with that. So she chose to marry him instead. So, and now granted, she didn't seem like she was necessarily completely happy about all that. And I understand why. And uh, which is also why there was an option for women to get out if they wanted to. Yeah, what uh, woman might choose to do that if she actually thinks she'd end up safer. But if she thought she'd be provided for and wanted to do that, she could. Um, the amount of money and the consequences for the man were were too greatly discouraged his behavior. And like we said, it clearly was working. Um, and that's why we don't see many examples of this ever happening in Israel. But if you look at the United States, we hear people in her crowd say that rape in college is one in five women. Mm -hmm. uh, which society do we think was effectively preventing rape? Ancient Israel or the United States? I right. think you can make an argument that God maybe had a better idea. And now she's like, oh, I can just come up with a better idea than God. Okay. Doesn't look like it. Because our society of it's okay to um, to be married and not be a virgin ahead of time um, seems to be going very badly for men and women. Very right. badly. Absolutely. Uh, and in fact, one of the number one things that show that a good, healthy marriage is that both remain virgins up to the point of marriage. Like that's we're seeing that's like a number one statistic on keeping people together in healthy families. So her solutions, let's talk about her solutions real quick. Uh, yeah. Again, resources were scarce. So they had some social programs in place, but a single mouth to feed was a massive burden for anyone. They were a desert nomadic people surrounded by enemies. That was far more difficult that she might realize, okay? Uh, and marry women who aren't virgins. Again, that's convenient and no, we shouldn't, now, now granted, if it's rape, that's a bit different, but we shouldn't just be like, oh yeah, marry a non-virgin who's just been promiscuous her entire life. God has a specific sexual ethic in mind. Also, you could marry a woman who wasn't a virgin. It was just more rare back then because of, um, because of the values. In fact, we still see that today. If a woman has a high body count, that's still frowned upon by most men. Men don't usually want to marry a woman with a high body count. He might want to sleep with her because that's all she's shown herself to be useful for. It's just to sleep with, not actual family material. You'll find that a lot of men who want to make a create a family, if she has a high body count, they avoid it. Mm -hmm. So Nowadays, to be a virgin is nearly, you know, a miracle. It seems like when someone gets married, and um, and we encourage people to engage in whoredom, but that's not what ought to be. But not back then. And trying to tell people to not be anything like their cultural world, like that's what you're asking. That's the entire ancient Near East. Are you out of your mind? That's not going to work. Yeah. People aren't going to just suddenly throw. Like God's not going to just be like, yeah, that culture that you're in, like get rid of all of it, like. That's ingrained. She's complaining about them not shifting their cultural values while she doesn't do the same. It's just so funny. Yeah. Um, so, and then she says that she came up with a better standard than God. Uh, I'm not a preceptor, but again, by what standard? Who declares what is more moral than God? And who gets to declare what is more moral in general? We've talked about the moral argument many times on here, but this doesn't follow. So she says she sees no moral value in it, though. So I guess, again, you really haven't studied how the Torah was a huge, huge leap in societal standards. And again, probably because you haven't read these texts nor read rabbinic commentaries on these uh, sections. 
uh, which built off of these principles to improve society more and more because the case law got improved upon and there was a lot of ways that they worked around the, 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 these laws of Moses. Like they weren't just like blanket wooden laws. That there was a lot of ways that these were would be applied. So this is one of many options in such situations that would come up. But after all, it wasn't necessarily the letter of the law that was emphasized for the Torah, but it was really the heart of it. And don't forget, she really started with this, this video was saying that she doesn't know. But she she doesn't sound like she's really following that right now. Remember, so but she knows uh, again, that she's more moral than God, but she exactly. doesn't know, and that's the ultimate truth. Exactly. <laughs> so she, again, yes, she. This can be offensive to her all day long, but she really is just making statements here that actually are nonsensical. So because in the cultural context, it was empowering women, it was protecting victims, it was giving them options when something tragic happened to them. And that's what it was. It was an option. It wasn't a requirement. They were not required to marry the rapist. But as we saw, even with that a woman from uh, this, that Afghan woman, some women would choose to do that because of the difficulty that it could cause her, especially if she was pregnant and she didn't have any suitable suitors. Because if you're pregnant, it's even harder when you have a child and everything to find a suitor, right? And that's even in the dating world today anyway. Single moms have a hard time finding good guys to date. It just is. It's hard to find people who are interested because some many men want to start their own families and not inherit a family. Mm -hmm. So anyway, um, and that's a lot of responsibility to ask for a man uh, or ask for anyone, really. It's not just... I don't want to sound like a like I'm for the patriarchy here. I'm just trying to be <laughs> honest about like the situation. So, all right, let's keep trucking. Sorry. Difficult time with that. I still cannot find a, a good justification for is in Deuteronomy 20, 10 through 18. When you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. If they accept and open their gates, all the people in it shall be subject to forced labor and shall work for you. If they refuse to make peace and they engage you in battle, lay siege to the city. When the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, put to sword all the men in it. As for the women, the children, the livestock, and everything else in the city, you may take these as plunder for yourselves. And you may use the plunder your Lord, the Lord your God gives you from your enemies. This is how you are to treat all cities that are at a distance from you and do not belong to the nations nearby. So God is commanding his people to go around to all the neighboring cities to offer them peace, to say, hey, you know, we're, we're, we're giving you a peace offering. Would you like to make peace with us? And if that city agrees to being peaceful with you, you are to capture them and enslave them. You are to force them to work for you, to be your slaves. So, so right here, right on in the very beginning, it, it's, it's saying to harm people that are peaceful with you, to, to force them to work for you, to enslave them. This is God specifically endorsing and commanding you to enslave other people, even if they're peaceful. Then it says, if they are not peaceful, then you are to just kill them all, kill every single one of them, and then take the women and children as plunder and do whatever with the plunder that you want to do. Those are the spoils of your war. What do you think that means? Like, what do you think it was intended when they said, take the women and children and do whatever you want with them? And then in verse 15, it says, this is how you were to treat all cities that are at a distance from you and don't belong to the nations nearby. This is xenophobia. This is genocide. <laughs> this is God endorsing slavery. All right here in this, just this small little passage. There is no justification for that. 
There's no reason that an all-powerful, fully benevolent God would command his people to do this to other people. And I can appreciate this as a book that is a commentary on the struggles of people at that time written by men, but I cannot accept this as some kind of divinely inspired word of God meant to provide a moral code for all people on earth. That's enough <laughs> blasphemous gobbledygook for me. Like, that's a bunch of blather. All right. <laughs> that's a great way to, great word for that. It's, this is xenophobia. Like, this is just. No. <laughs> like, tell me you don't understand again the ancient Near East without telling me you don't understand the ancient Near East. You know what's funny is that if she saw what these people were like that God was declaring war against, you'd be like, oh no, wipe them out. Like, yeah. you think the Nazis are bad. Like, these people, like the Assyrians, are. I've mentioned this on this program before, but historians have called the Assyrians the, the, the Nazis of the ancient world. Uh, there are things like lining, like there would be, there's this like execution technique where they'd take a post and they put uh, like someone's rectum on it and let gravity slowly impale them. And they would put this uh, until it like came out of some other part of their body and kill them. Um, that they lined their roads with that as a warning to their enemies. They would, you know, there's, you're talking like on the walls of your cities, leaving, hanging people's skins and then burning your children alive to Molech. And it's like, how dare you declare war on all these opposing cities? Like, no, no, they deserved it. <laughs> they're peaceful. They're all right. That's what's funny. It's like these people who, who are peaceful, like they're not peaceful. Most of them were monsters. And yeah. yes, their women and children were in like, uh, okay. We just got to unpack it. It's just yeah. fine. Uh, okay. Yeah. Let's just, it just, it bothers the snot out of me because it's like once you start reading this stuff, you just go, well, yeah, they had it coming. Like, yeah. um, so these, first off, as Brian mentioned earlier, these cities would be military outposts. If you look at the geography and look at what was going on in the, and Dr. Paul Copan and many others have pointed this out, okay, that these were military outposts. And have point and that and that these people would become quote forced labor. So again, your post Geneva Convention lenses are showing, and it's mm -hmm. a bad look, uh, especially when you're making moral outrage when you claim there is no gods and therefore you cannot justify morality in any way, shape, or form. This is just subjective morality, uh, so stop it. Um, but again, she just says she can't accept it as gods. But then again, if you can't do that, then you can't accept any form of morality with any actual objection besides a personal preference and opinion, but whatever. Anyway, what you normally do if you marched on a city or you were at odds with the city is that you find a way to break down its city walls or get into the city walls and kill them all. Men, women, children, rape what you could, kill the other people and take the rest as plunder. Like it was just, that's what it was. That's all your, okay. all your things are become us. Right. But even to offer terms of peace was wildly unheard of. So that was alone. This is, a, again, another moral step to spare mm -hmm. them, though, was even more wild back then. Israel had them work for them. Sure. However, if you look at the, the forced labor that would happen with the enemies, there were laws on how you would have to treat your forced labor. And in comparison to other places, as we noted uh, in part one, I think of this, wait, no, earlier this earlier in this very episode, to other people that allowed you to do as you please with them. 
That's what other places were like. These, they were your property. You could do whatever you wanted. But the servants would also work. And by the way, they had rest in similar ways as the people of Israel, including on the Sabbath. So if you were a slave in Israel, you were half the time treated better than a, a, a civilian in a, in normal countries. And again, yeah, it wasn't like the American slave trade. When people read this into the scripture, they're realizing that's that's not it. In fact, in the beginning of Judges, um, the Israelites are condemned for essentially committing what was very similar to the the American slave trade. And as mentioned earlier, people would fawn to be uh, over Israel's laws. They'd fawn over them, which is why Israel, you know, again, welcomed sojourners and Egyptians came with them and the Exodus. These were only, uh, and so again, these were places specifically condemned, not obligatory places, not just random places. These were places specifically condemned for their evil and immorality. These places uh, were where women were raped, children were murdered, and on and on I could go. And then God would, you know, basically condemn them and tell Israel to do that what needs to be done. So again, forced labor was essentially a sense of employment as well in ancient Israel. And you'd have to care for them, feed them, give them lodging. Uh, they could actually have families. Uh, they were given times to rest. Uh, it wasn't a simple task. And again, we see this happen very little. And masters could even, by the way, free them, depending on, like, on a situation with a certain amount of years. So men would be killed. Now, this is what the, the thing, because it says they made peace, but then you'd kill all the men. And which sounds like you didn't just make peace. But there's a reason why. We talked about me, like men being the sexual aggressors. Back then, men were like animal, like they were animalistic patriarchs. Like <laughs> they didn't have to be civilized people because they were more powerful than other people. So things worked really well in favor of men. Sociologists have talked about this for a long time. Men would be killed because they were the greatest threat. Think about it. If you just marched on this city that was condemned by God, the men were the ones who ruled it. The men were the ones who were oppressing the women and children within it. And they were also the men. Do you think, do you think the men would want to live in a more peaceful society? No. The men want their power back. <laughs> yeah. Plus, you're killing the men in the example of when they don't accept the terms of peace and they are fighting against you. Right. But think about that for a minute. Like you would slay the men for a reason. They were the threat. Mm -hmm. Right. So they would. So basically, uh, men who had oppressed women and children because they were the greatest, that they actually wouldn't if they were oppressing women and children, and doing that to their own people, they wouldn't think twice of doing the same thing to Israel, given the chance. Yeah, yeah they're doing that their own wives and children. Think what they're going to do to people invading their city. <laughs> right. So does it seem harsh? Sure. Barbaric? Maybe. But a necessary evil in the harsh world of the ancient Near East? Yeah, most likely, right? So she claims they're peaceful. And again, the people like the Canaanites were not peaceful. Accepting terms of peace doesn't mean that the people were actually peaceful. It means uh -huh. that you just might have had a greater show of force that happened to create peace terms for the moment. Yeah. <laughs> they couldn't do whatever they wanted to them either. Like that's what she claimed here, right? Oh, they could do it, just take them as blood or do whatever. What do you, and she implied, did you notice that she applied rape? Like, yeah. what do you think that means? What do you think, that, what do you think means? that means to take the women and children's plunder for yourselves? Uh, it means that they couldn't do what you're implying. Yep. That's what it means. <laughs> because there's laws against that. And actually, you are not allowed to have sexual relations with children in in uh, 
the mosaic context uh women there's different words for like women and boys and to men and teenagers like there's different words for it and a woman had to at least have had her first period before she was even considered to be eligible for marriage so you aren't allowed to have sexual relations with children children so again what she's implying there is just poisoning the well and is untrue so it's not she calls it xenophobia and genocide. So yeah. again, learn context and learn to compare parts and see how the case law was actually applied. Foreigners were told to be welcomed. That's not xenophobic. Yeah. Even if they weren't Israel, if they didn't convert, they were told to welcome them and treat them fairly and well. She could accept it was a struggle of the times for men, but not for God? Like, think about that for a minute. Like, God, these are people who have, again, free will and all that, because contrary to popular belief of her Romans 9 view, men does have free will. You think it wasn't a struggle for God? Like, obviously, in a sense, like God doesn't struggle. God knows God's all powerful. But the fact that God has to work with these people, God has to work with people with where they're at. Do you think it's not like God doesn't isn't like, OK, this is a really like this is the world that they live in. This is what my people have to deal with. So now I have to create the best situation for this situation. Yeah. That's why so, God's long suffering. <laughs> right. God's long suffering and why he continually improved Israel and brought Messiah and the Messiah taught the highest standard of things to the point of humility and death in the service of others. It's like this continual climax to the ultimate moral so yeah. anyway she asked yeah. what do you think that means and again she if you listen to her own intro she's again supposed to say i don't know yeah she's supposed to be okay with that right she's <laughs> what do you think that means i don't know christy i thought we were said we we're okay with saying i don't know according honestly by her own standards she should be completely okay with me as a christian saying i don't know but i still believe mm -hmm. she should be completely okay with that because yeah and not want to deconstruct but right Exactly. She really wants you to deconstruct with her because that would validate her preconceived notions and biases. Boom. Now, Brian, do you have anything you want to say on that Deuteronomy passage? Because I think you and I got some things no. to say on her next verse. You summarized it well. John 3.16, I have thoughts. <laughs> oh, All wow. right. Let's let us roll. It was very, very crucial in my deconstruction was probably the most famous verse in the Bible. And that's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave up his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have everlasting life. And most people point to this and they say, how could you find fault in that? How could you have a problem with that? Look at the love. All you have to do is believe. Do you see how easy that is? But let's, let's break it down just a little bit. Let's deconstruct John 3, 16. Please don't. For God so loved the world. So first of all, Considering the other verses we've talked about, I don't think that's accurate. I don't think God so loved the world. I don't think God loved all of those surrounding cities of the nation of Israel that he was commanding Israel to go and kill or enslave. I don't think God loved all of the women and children that God was commanding them to take as plunder and do with whatever they wanted. I don't think he was loving the women that he was forcing into marriage with men that assaulted them. I'm not seeing the the love God has for the world in that. So right off the bat, I feel like we're lying here. <laughs> okay. God to love the world. Before. Okay. That he gave up his only son. Now this is loaded because 
it's his son, but it's also him, depending upon what you believe or which denomination you're a part of, or even which time frame you came out of. Because in the very earliest days, people did not believe that Jesus was God. They believed Wrong. Jesus was God's son, um, perhaps adopted into the kingdom by God, or he was given some kind of a divine status at birth. Um, but it actually took a very long time for Christians to actually believe that Jesus no. was God himself. That was doctrine that evolved and was created later on. But, no. but modern Christians believe that Jesus was God. Jesus is God. And so when it says he gave up his only son, well, he's God. It's not his son, it's him. He gave up himself. That's mortalism, Patrick. Okay, so he gave up himself. But why did he have to do that? What was the point? In my last video, the manipulation of the crucifixion, um, we talked about that, about how he never had to do that. He was never obligated to die or to put on this big death display in order to guilt humanity into believing in him or following him or whatever. That was never a requirement of him. <laughs> He chose that. He made the rules. He decided that blood needed to be shed in order for humanity to be forgiven. He couldn't have just decided to forgive them. That would be silly, right? So his choice to give up his life, I mean, that was entirely his choice and it was unnecessary. It was only made necessary because he decided it was necessary. So it's really not that much of a gift. It's not that much of a display of love when it was never necessary to begin with. But that's that's not even the worst part. The worst part to me is the end of the verse where it says, whosoever believes shall have eternal life and not perish. Whosoever believes. So right here, the Bible is telling us the measure for determining whether someone deserves to be punished forever or they deserve to be rewarded forever it, it is belief. It's just, it's just belief. It's what you believe. How is that fair? How is that a just system that it has nothing to do with how good of a person you are? It has nothing to do with your intentions. It is, it's just about what you believe. And people believe all kinds of things for all kinds of reasons. People that are raised in other cultures under other religions, they believe in their religion because that's how they were raised. Just like many Christians today are Christians because they were raised in a Christian culture, in the Christian church by Christian parents. They don't question it. They don't leave it because, well, that's how they were raised. That's their culture. People all over the world are raised in different cultures with different religions, and that's why they believe what they believe. Not only that, but people also believe because they have their own personal experiences. They have their own holy texts, their own evidence for God that doesn't look anything like the Christian God. But because they don't believe in the Christian God, they deserve to perish they don't get to have eternal life. They don't get to be rewarded. No matter how good of a person they are, no matter how good their intentions are, they don't believe. So they perish. You cannot choose what you believe. If you believe in God, if you're someone who, who believes in God and you're watching this right now and you, you might disagree with everything I'm saying, you might be a Christian and you might truly believe in your heart of hearts that this God exists and he saves and you're going to go to heaven one day. Can you, for one minute, stop believing that? Like, could you set a one-minute timer on your phone and just, tr like, be convinced, not just pretend, but, like, be truly convinced in your heart of hearts that it's, it's all fake, it's not real? Because if belief really is a choice, if you can just turn it on and off like a switch, if you can just choose to believe one day and choose not to believe the next day, then you could easily do that. 
if you're honest with yourself and honest with me, I think you would say no, because you believe, you believe without a doubt, you're, you're convinced. And unless something comes along to make you unconvinced, you're going to maintain that belief. And so knowing that, how is belief an appropriate measure for what someone deserves in the afterlife? I just don't think it adds up. And I don't think that a good God, I don't think a smart God would create the system where all you have to do to be eternally rewarded is just believe like God is a fairy, like God will fall over and die if you don't. Is it hard or not to do? (laughs) You know, there are a lot of Bible verses that I find to be very unsavory, but these. All right. That's the end of that. Uh, That's like the even more cringe at the end. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's most progressive language and the world's worst thoughts on all this stuff. It's she she has a poor understanding of how belief and like epistemological certainty and justification uh, of belief even works. Like it's not a switch that people. Yeah, no one believes it like that. Yeah, no, it's like, no, I can't because I don't have information that convinces me to turn that off. It's not that it's just a choice that can be turned on and off. Right. So that is so, it's just such a bad view because if someone convinced me I could choose not to believe, but she's saying we don't choose what to believe. Well, therefore, I can't choose what not to believe. No. So if I can't choose what to believe, and what not to believe, then I can't even follow you on your deconstruction journey. And your whole thing is pointless because I'm not a free thinker. I can't choose what to believe. So no. congratulations, Christy. You played yourself. You can't even hold up to your own standard. You're just a big ball of contradiction and nonsense that people shouldn't even take seriously. But let's unpack your your cold take. Your very her deconstruction. Of yeah, John. her deconstruction of John 3.16. Your very cold, Arctic cold take on John 3.16. So she doesn't think God loves the world because of all the passages that she quoted before. It's really dependent on her poor takes on the rest of them. Right. So she doesn't think God loves the world because she misses the forest for the trees. Her first one, Romans 9. God apparently doesn't love the world because he includes Gentiles into a loving covenant that offers eternal life unto all. (laughs) Deuteronomy 22. God doesn't think, God doesn't love the world because a man is punished and a woman has options when she's raped to choose what to do with her future. Apparently that's not God loving the world. God doesn't love the world because he tells them not to kill, rape, and pillage all your enemies as the other nations do. (laughs) God warned and was patient to the other nations as well. Like these nations that she say that God pillaged and destroyed and hated. He warned them. He called them to repent and warned them. Joshua even sent out letters before his conquests, (laughs) warning them to stop and repent. To be fair, she probably didn't know that. But remember, but remember, Brian, you don't choose what to believe anyway. So I guess those letters don't mean anything because he was just asking them to repent from killing children and doing all these horrible, evil things. But uh, but oddly enough, it's kind of funny because it kind of proves my point, which is really hard that it's really hard to like shed one's culture. And it's like, yes. And you're asking people you're saying people she just made my point like, well, because that's really kind of what she's trying to get to, like. Can you just stop believing what you believe? It's like, well, no, but it is hard to shed culture and values, isn't it? Can she so, stop being a cringy postmodernist? Because I don't think she can. Right. So anyway, so God warned it was patient with these uh, these nations, but then he just told them to wipe them out. He he waited like 400 years, I think, with the Canaanites. 
Yeah. So, and then she talks about the Trinity and the sun. When she starts with saying, give God gave up. And I'm like, that's not, that's not this words. I kept looking for like, what translation is she using where gives up? It's not in the scripture. (laughs) She made that up. He isn't losing his his son. son. (laughs) He's given his son as a gift to bring us back into communion with, with God. It's not giving up. God didn't lose Jesus. (laughs) Where'd he go? I guess it's, I guess it's people or or Jesus. I guess out with Jesus in with all the sinners. That's not what God was doing. (laughs) Well, and then it's like, then she's like, it's really hell. But then people early on didn't believe that. So many, like, first off, there was the Aryan controversy in the early church, but it was a controversy for a reason because there's a lot of people who believed he was God because the Bible, like the apostles, described him as God. Yeah, <laughs> and a, the, really this what got him crucified. He's the way he said they're like you. What you committed was blasphemy because you, though man, make yourself to be God. That's literally what's in the gospel accounts. Yeah. So. Again, no, many people believed he was God. The controversy began soon after his ascension because guess what? Paul, Romans 9, 5 says, to them belong the patriarchs from their rate. By the way, Romans 9, remember she doesn't read context. Romans 9, which was complained about earlier, verse 16. She should have probably gone back to verse 5 for a minute. To them belong the patriarchs from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. Titus 2.13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What's, so what's the point here? Well, yeah. she said the point, the point early uh, is to say that she doesn't know. But again, she's going to tell us more about what she does know. All kinds of truth claims, though. This is why, and also her view of why Jesus had to die is just very bad. Because she basically points out this like, oh, God's the one who set the rules and God's the one who demanded blood to forgive. Why couldn't he just forgive? He does. He freely forgives. That's like kind of the whole point. He tells yeah. us and this is why having like a non-penal substitutionary view of the atonement can really help you out. Because, yes, if penal substitutionary to penal substitution was correct, you might have a point that God demanded recompense for his and satisfaction for his wrath and all that. But that's not what the historical church has taught from a, 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 probably doesn't know there's now. more than one view of the atonement. <laughs> Right. Then she should again she study before you start talking. Verses, so why would she know multiple views of the atonement? That's also <laughs> true. Historical ones. So did he make the rules? That's the question. Did he make the rules or was something deeper at play? So there was something deeper at play. Satan ruled the world. Deuteronomy 32, the sons of God uh, were given dominion over the earth because they corrupted it. There's all these divine rebellions that happened. And so God had to find a way to, def- God found a way to defeat them. I always say have a found a way like he didn't know, but you get the idea. All right. Get with the colloquialisms here. All right. I shouldn't have to caveat everything, but I just know people are. But she said, so God had to figure out a way. Well, okay. Well, how do you do that? Well, I want people to understand what it is to truly serve and love one another because only to truly serve and love one another is evil defeated and Satan and all the, his and all his little you know miscreants they're the ones who don't understand this so he puts forward his son as a gesture of love and humility to be humiliated by everyone to die and show his ultimate gesture of love and compassion so yeah. talk about well, all benevolent god but she says doesn't seem to exist 
Yes, gives of his own son incarnate. By the way, the word son is just also saying that he is like co-heir with with him. Like it's also like kingly language that you can use that. So it's not oh, and essentially this idea that son, the firstborn, the one who receives the inheritance because he's the one in the flesh, so therefore he's the representative of God. To get into the first century idea here, and you'll understand that son isn't always biological. It's also a title. So this is why, again, having a proper uh, view here comes uh, because he does forgive us. The blood in, in the ancient Near East, uh, blood was a symbol of covenant and it was a symbol of life. And like I pledge my life to you, you know, through blood because it's my life that's on the line. My blood is on the line. I am pledging my life with your life. So it's a covenant that's being made here and our sin brings death and blood is life and so it's a life-giving covenant that god gives by pouring his blood out to us and for us to cleanse the earth and of of the wickedness and corruption of sin with the purity of a holy life and destroy the dominion of satan sin and death and that's why he had to resurrect to defeat death by death so anyway whatever okay because she said it was only necessary because he decided it was necessary. That is only true if vol like the strictest voluntarism is true, which is the idea yeah. that viewing God as such as a form of will, that whatever he commands to be right and wrong is what's right and wrong. So he could have made a world where rape was moral. He could have made a, ra a world where rape was immoral. Um, so again, this shows her Calvinistic view because Calvinists, despite what they say, there is voluntarism is at the very bottom of it. Yeah. Which ironically, she'll at the end of that part, she's chastising that we have to believe because when she read Romans nine, she was believing that election was decreed as the Calvinists believe. But now she's upset that there's something we have to do in order to be believed to be to be saved. So I, she's not even keeping with the same soteriological context of the verses that she's saying helped her lose her faith. Right. Doesn't make any sense. She's not even being consistent in her words here, even with her viewing of scripture. Yeah, her more view, yeah, she, she can't be consistent. She's a postmodernist, ex evangelical, TikTok deconstructionist. <laughs> it's like everything that you expect to be contradictory. Um, so again, he doesn't decide it was necessary. That, that, this is why there's a, a whole debate on the issue of morality in Christianity. And, uh, you know, if you believe in natural law or that uh, it is some sense of moral realism that morality is bound in the nature of God, he didn't decide it's just it's it's part of the natural law of the universe it's the ontology of the universe part of the very fabric of it and in order for god to do that to def to defeat sin death and satan he had to def he defeated it by using his very weapon against it just like uh satan corrupted the seed of women right by increasing there's pain increased pain in childbirth there is now the corruption of sin god used the seed of a woman to bring messiah and so he used so what God, what Satan used to dest to destroy and corrupt creation, God used to redeem creation. Creation, same thing with death. Satan brought death. Hebrews two fourteen is the power of Satan. Then you whip it around, and God uses death to destroy Satan's dominion. So again, this is obviously a, a sign of a benevolent God and a conquering God who conquers out of love and conquers with peace. It's actually kind of incredible when you think about it. Like he conquers yeah. with peace. It's very poetic in its, in its parallelism, and and I would say the third wing of that is Satan corrupts the flesh of man through the temptation of the fruit, and then God puts on 
the flesh of man to destroy the power of Satan over mankind. Right. And, and purges mankind of the sin within them, mm -hmm. uh, which is why he nailed it to the cross. Uh, so exclusivity of salvation are those who believe. Um, so she, that, so that's the thing. She, the exclusivity of salvation to those who believe actually offends her. Right. So she's like all these other people with all these different beliefs. So they just go to hell. But first off, belief is fealty. Faith is fealty. It's this idea of like it's allegiance. Yeah, it's allegiance. It's it, so it's not like a complete belief system in the same way. It's I believe in you because I'm loyal to you. Just like when you look at somebody, like a coach looks to somebody in his team, he's like, I believe in you, man, you can do this. It's that same kind of thing. Uh, it's not just like a idea of like intellectual assent of belief. Like I believe something exists. It's this idea of fealty. So that's what true faith is. So she, her entire definition, her entire almost rant falls apart once you properly understand faith. But Romans 2, 14 through 15 deals also with her complaint where it offers salvation to those who respond to the revelation they are given. So they respond positively to God in their, by the revelation they have been given as a possibility of mercy there. So um, yeah, it says they're either accused or excused on the day of judgment. Right. So you're offended by this exclusion, but despite the Bible being openly inclusive, other religions do not afford such. Okay. So again, this just doesn't really make sense. So this is the yeah. whole exclusionism versus inclusionism debate. And it doesn't really hold water when you're an, ex an inclusivist because God can say, God can save anybody is merciful and he could save somebody who might have the wrong beliefs, but they're responding to what they do know of God in the best way that they know. Yeah. And that's Hebrews 2, says, 14. Yeah. And then she says, it has nothing to do with how good of a person you are. I'm like, thank goodness. I know we talked a little mm -hmm. bit about this in part one. <laughs> Excuse me. But just she just walked away from God, right? She, the God of the universe, and wants, and wants it to be based on how good you are and the actions and your intentions of your heart. I don't think she wants to be judged by that. I don't want to be judged by that. That's a it, relief for us that it is not based on our actions or our intentions. It's based on our allegiance. And cause our, I don't, yeah, because I don't know about you, bro. But depending on the day, I would pass. Yeah. And depending on the other day, I would miserably fail. <laughs> <laughs> really depends on my day, my mood, my experiences, and how disciplined I am that day. Yeah, but like I, I, said, it's this. I think that's the first person, first time I've ever heard anyone say, that they are upset that salvation is not based on our actions. <laughs> <laughs> well, this kind of goes into that self-righteousness of the evangelical progressive crowd where they think that they're like somehow the moral patriarchs of society. Yeah. Like there's little self-awareness of what like wickedness does reside in their heart and the unrighteousness that they have committed. Because that, that's the narcissism right there speaking, right? Because everyone I know is like, holy cow, I'm so glad it's not based because – I'm so maybe it's just that we because we understand God's morality better than a TikTok atheist. Maybe because we understand like just how wicked our thoughts are. Like when I'm bitter, that's sin. Mm -hmm. Um, because that's wishing evil upon somebody. My vengefulness, my you know, maybe your lust, maybe your um greed, maybe your pride, your ego, whatever. We look at this and go, man, I'd miss the mark a lot. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I think that's a good point. So because there's that, that's that narcissism of that, right? Like the, the progressives always think that they're like the 
I don't know, the messiahs of morality. But anyway, she yeah. says that they don't they don't question it though, right? She goes, they don't question it. Didn't she just say she wasn't allowed to question it? <laughs> yeah. Which is it? They don't Please question it, and we're not allowed to. <laughs> like people raised in church don't question it, or are they not allowed to? Are we indoctrinated, or is it because we're told we can't? Like, but also yeah. again, that's why seminaries exist and other things where you're openly welcome to question. Yeah, and she's chiding them that they're raised in this culture where they they believe what they believe. Why? What? She's raised in this culture of postmodernism. And she believes that she's more moral than the God of Scripture. She believes that that she can justify having morality and condemn and and condemn all these what she calls atrocities or whatever in the Old Testament. But she has no foundation for morality if she doesn't believe in God. If there is no God in the universe at all, there is no foundation for morality. It's just opinions. And where what does she have to have an opinion on Scripture? Is it being moral immoral? Because in that case, it's just another book of opinions. Doesn't make any sense. Uh, so I think that she was raised in postmodernism, and obviously some Christian home inside the culture of postmodernism, and we can see that coming out in her belief structure. So if they can't change what they believe, maybe she can't change what she believes either. <laughs> and maybe that's why she's making these cringy videos that are expounding on things that she doesn't understand. She can't do otherwise because Romans yeah. nine is in the Calvinistic sense must be true. <laughs> <laughs> she is totally prayed, maybe. Names, yeah, again, which is, by the way, saying that you have no idea what to believe is kind of ironic in a video entitled Five Verses That Caused Me to Deconstruct. <laughs> so no one they believes. Chose to deconstruct, but you can't choose that. But she was also able to choose different interpretations and evidence that she wanted to have be compelling in order to choose to believe. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know anyone anyway who defines belief the way she does. But anyway, I... Yeah. Uh, she goes, I hope I gave you an alternative perspective so that you stop believing it too. <laughs> Am I not allowed to? So you can choose it. <laughs> so I can choose it. I'm so confused. What's your messaging here, Christy? Which, yeah, again, you totally can't choose to change. But anyway, yeah, that's that, man. There it is. There two it parts. is. <laughs> two parts. Took us two hours and about 23 minutes altogether to respond to Christy Burke's 20 minute video because it's just that bad. And like, I will say this, like, I, I know there's like Trinity radio is so much more compassionate unless Pritchett's speaking. Braxton's very good at this, uh, this part, but like, okay, I know we, we've said some, we, I've, I should say, I've said some harsh things that you concurred with, yes. but uh, I've said some pretty critical things. And the reason I do is one, not only because I'm passionate about this, but because I tire of people speaking on things they know nothing about in this world and having and being given this huge opportunity with a giant platform and to see people squander their platforms with false information, poor belief structures, a, a complete misrepresentation of belief systems. Like, guess what? I might not be a fan of Islam. Again, I think it's about got the moral equivalency of a trash bag but even with that uh that said like i don't ever want to misrepresent them i want to make sure everyone hears what they actually teach and believe like what's his name who debated michael jones saying that children should be able to be given as brides like i want people to hear what they have to teach i want people to listen to what they have to say and represent it properly because sometimes all i needed people to do is let's hear the words coming out of your mouth but like I tire of people being given platforms 
who know nothing about what they're talking about, misrepresenting it and being given this great opportunity to squander it and destroy it. And us having to respond to it like they and honestly, when you've had that big of a platform, you can't you've either had the opportunity to get this information or you've had the information and you choose to ignore it. Yeah. And either way passionate about it because people's lives are on the line, right? People are listening to this kind of crap for lack well, then, of a term and they're letting it cast all kinds of doubt. And her argumentation is bad. Her context is bad. Her understanding of it is bad. And her saying that she has no justification and good, good explanation for these verses is either a lie or she has done almost no research on these passages that she's which, now talking about. Which means she shouldn't be taken seriously. She shouldn't be t- like talked about like she should be taken seriously. Because if you haven't done the research, why should I take it seriously? You know, I, uh, but you're talking like I should. That's the whole problem. Like, I have no problem people asking questions. Like, I love sitting down and getting coffee with somebody and having a fun, like, a really interesting conversation with questions involved and just going back and forth. I love that. You know that, Brian. That was, like, half of what you and I used to do when I lived in Michigan. Um, Getting with people who we disagreed with or who had questions and just having those really calm, cool, collected conversations. And they were. Except for a few times where they weren't. But Danny, uh, we're espousing too is not the one that says don't question, not the one that you'd be scared to question. You should be questioning these things, but also then answer those questions with with good evidence, good reasoning, good rationale, and good context. And she just fails to do that over and over again. And yeah, if you come at those questions with bad data, you are going to reach bad conclusions, and that mm-hmm. that applies not just to Christianity but all parts of life exactly so that uh i think that actually is a good that's a good conclusion brian that's a good conclusion i don't have anything to say add to that so. <laughs> yes so anyway guys this has been oh, real quick brian do you have anything else to say no I, I guess the only thing i'd say is just uh as we'll say to anyone who we rebut you're welcome to come online and respond to us and talk to us in person if you want yeah. to answer these, these comments and challenges yeah we welcome you onto the channel christy if you ever see this you're welcome to have a conversation with us. I promise. Uh, you know, we actually could be quite friendly. It won't be as hostile. Well, at least I hope it won't be as hostile. Um, but also, I just really encourage anyone who was shaken by any of the stuff that she said or hears the stuff, please, you reach out to people. It's okay to ask questions, but reach out and get the data before you make the decision to jump off a ship that could be life-altering entirely. Like to jump off the Christian ship is to really can really mess it. Like what if Christianity was true and you just ditched the ship? Well, then what are the consequences? So think about it, those sorts of things as you go forward, like be cautious on what you believe and why you believe it. And before you denounce something make sure you understand fully the breadth of what you could be accepting or denouncing, or maybe you see a shift your understanding. Uh, and sometimes that's a multiple year journey and that's okay. But also, it's not okay to listen to people and take them seriously when they actually don't know what they're talking about at all. Like, don't do that. Like, if you hear something online, just because it's on the internet doesn't mean it's true, right? <laughs> Including yeah. this. Including Fact us. check us. Fact check <laughs> the church time. split. We're okay with being fact checked. We have issued apologies before when we've gotten something wrong. But just, yeah. Anyway, that's that. So... This has been part two of our response to Christy Burke's five verses that led her to deconstruction. If you haven't already, like and subscribe to The Church Split. We would love to have you. Uh, and 
also uh, support us on Patreon if you want. But I hope this has been uh, fun for you, encouraging for you, maybe informative for you. And uh, if not, and you're just here to watch the world burn, then welcome to the Thunderdome. But otherwise, uh, appreciate you guys being here. So take care and God bless. And guys, if you want to avoid seeing obnoxious ads like this, we gotta be strong, we gotta be healthy. When you wanna feel nice and strong and satisfied, you gotta check out Good Ranchers. Right now, go to goodranchers.com, use promo code Knowles. Or that. We also wanna thank Free Life Soap, because I don't know about y'all, yes. but I got a new shipment of soap yes, in. Yes, I did. Here yes, sir. And it was great. Or this. Hi guys, my name is Will, and I'm here to tell you why you should be a student at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. Or that. We'll get to that momentarily. First, I want to talk to you about Daily Wire's most trusted privacy partner and premier sponsor of this show, ExpressVPN. Are you aware that your browsing data is constantly being tracked and monitored? Please support us on Patreon. We do not want to annoy you filthy heretics with any sort of ads on this show. So when you're a Patreon subscriber, you also get access to our apologetics classes and other video content a whole month. Of things. You can support us on Patreon for as low as $1 a month.